to Cross Defense. It's Monday afternoon. That's what that sound means. It's time to start the show. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and host of Cross Defense, a Monday afternoon radio show taking you home, driving home on KFUO, where we ignite the the fires of theological interest and curiosity in your imagination. We want to discover rediscover always the joy of the gospel, the comfort of the gospel, the wisdom of God's law. We want to hear God's word and delight in it. Uh, so thanks for being part of the program today uh, for the next hour. Uh, if you've got questions, probably the, what's the best way to do that? I think the best way is Twitter, at KFUO Radio, or at B. Wolfmuller. That's my Twitter. I'll try to figure out how to log on to it. B-W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R, or uh, you can call in, jump in, uh, and uh, you can call the, if you're in St. Louis, the number is 314-821-0850, or anywhere in the world, I don't know if it's toll-free from Antarctica or not, but if you're down in Antarctica, you should try, see what happens, 1-800-730-2727. Today, my guest is going to be Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer from Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. We'll grab him in 20 minutes or so and see what he's got for us, what sort of theological curiosity. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you all about Thanksgiving. I was reading this morning this stunning verse in the end of Colossians. I've got to find it here. Uh, and I've been thinking about a lot about Thanksgiving anyways. And then I came across this verse in Colossians chapter 4, where Paul says, Continue earnestly in prayer, be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in change. Now, now, now think about that. Paul says to be diligent in prayer, but especially to be diligent with thanksgiving. Now, Paul himself is... Um, what he keeps his own commandment there he he himself is diligent with thanksgiving he's always giving thanks in fact and i think we've talked about this on the on the program before but uh because it's what i'm interested in and because i'm the host we end up talking about what i'm interested in that's the way it goes when you're the radio host anyhow i'm interested in paul and prayer and there's 13 letters right that paul writes in the new testament 13 books that are by saint paul and in those 13 books, he has 18 times, 18 times, where he talks about what he prays for. And most often, he begins his epistles. In fact, every letter he writes, he begins with noting what he's thankful for, except for two times, in that's Titus and also in Galatians. But every other letter that he writes, he begins with thanksgiving. In Romans, we'll look at Romans in a little bit, but in Romans he says, first of all, I give thanks. And I, and I don't think Paul means, hey, I'm going to say a lot of things, but the first thing I want to say to you is that I give thanks to you. I think that Paul means that his primary, his first uh, work is to give thanks. He says, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 8, first, I thank my God, uh, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So Paul is constantly giving thanks. In fact, it's an amazing thing to me that when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, you know, this church in Corinth is an absolute disaster. I mean, there's, perhaps most embarrassingly, there's the guy who's, got, who's been married to his mother-in-law, and he's bra or at least he's moved in with her, he's bragging about it, there's people who are fighting back and forth in church. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. There's um, 
I mean, all the things that are wrong in Corinth, there are, there, there's people who are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. The rich people who bring the bread and the wine to the Lord's Supper aren't letting the poor people come to even have the Lord's Supper. The, the church there in Corinth, had some of them had forgotten about the resurrection, or they didn't even believe in the resurrection. Uh, so Paul has to write about that. I mean, it seems like there's a, there's a million things that are wrong in Corinth. And if I'm right, if I'm St. Paul and I'm writing to Corinth, you know how I start my letter? I start my letter saying, I pull out my hair every day for all of you. <laughs> but that's not how Paul starts. I mean, look. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus. This is stunning. So Paul, even there, even to the, to the Corinthians, he thanks God for them. Now, now, so so Paul shows himself uh, faithful to follow his own advice, that he himself is diligent in thanksgiving. Now, so, so I want to I meditate on that, because I think this is good for us to think about. We, we often think that thanksgiving is simply a, um, a, a natural sort of thing, that, that I'm thankful or that I'm grateful. In fact, that's the, that's the language that the secular people like to use. They like to say, they, they like to practice gratefulness, and it's almost like it just happens. Like, I'm, I, I can't control it. But Paul is instructing us to actually labor or work to be thankful just, just just think about that for a little bit. That thankfulness is a work that we want to set our attention to, that we want to set our mind to, and that we want to set our will to. That we want to be diligent to be thankful. Now, now to consider what that means, what I'd like to do, and I don't know if, if you guys have the stomach for this, I always, in high school, in biology class, we'd always have to do the dissections. You remember the, you remember the dissections? And I... I just did not like it. I did not like the dissections at all. And we had to dissect a worm and a anyway. I want to dissect thankfulness. Now any sort of dissection is a bit of a is a bit of a gross task and I think that thankfulness also is going to be a, a, as we dissect it it'll, it it'll be a bit um wearisome because we're going to look at the parts and see what makes thankfulness. But then we're going to stitch it all back together. And then I think we'll be able to come to the end of this little monologue and be thankful for it. Because what, what I noticed, and I, I don't know about you guys, but what I noticed is that my own mind is almost always on tomorrow. I'm always thinking about what's next. I, I, I like to do this survey, and, and if you guys want to jump in and, uh, and answer this question, I'd love to hear from you on the Twitter uh, at B. Wolfmuller or at KFUO Radio. Uh, when you go to bed at night, do you think, do you think about what happened uh, today, you know, what, what you just finished, or are you thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow? And I found as I've done little uh, imprecise surveys that probably about a third of the people think back over today and probably two-thirds are thinking about tomorrow. Now, thankfulness, this is really interesting, thankfulness has to be looking backwards, Thankfulness has to be looking at what is or what was, because there's nothing yet in the future to give thanks for. In fact, I, I think if we have our minds set on tomorrow, that's one of the reasons why we worry so much, because tomorrow is full of worry. There, as, we, as we think about what's going to happen tomorrow, it's all sorts of potential stuff. It's potential good stuff, potential bad stuff, but the only thing we can do with our mind on tomorrow is worry. We can't be thankful for tomorrow. We have to be thankful for today and for yesterday, do you see? 
So that to be thankful involves a reorientation of our of our mental direction. It's it's not to be thinking about what is about to happen or what is around the corner. It to be thankful means to first consider what is and what has been. When Paul begins his letters, now think about this, when Paul begins his letters by being thankful, he's looking at the at the things that have already happened, at the gifts that the church already possesses, at the at the tasks that have already been accomplished, at the reality that already is. So thankfulness involves, for me anyways, since I'm sort of pushing always to the future, thankfulness involves a turning around and, and, and opening my eyes to the things that already are. And, and, then, and then you have the things that already are, and, and thankfulness is going to be able to recognize the things that are and the source of things that are. Those, in fact, are the two fundamental recognitions of thanksgiving. You have to recognize the thing, and you have to recognize the source of the thing. Uh, just think for an example. If you're walking uh, along on the street and you find a $20 bill just sitting there on the ground, it just fell out of someone's pocket and it's sitting there and you look around, there's nobody around. And there's nobody wrote their name on the $20 bill. It's, you, you just, it's there on the ground and you, and you pick it up and you, and you can recognize the thing as good. But who do you give thanks to? You're looking around to try to figure out who it, but you don't know where it came from. And so you can't give thanks. If, on the other hand, someone walks up, a stranger walks up, and they hand you a $20 bill, well, then you have the $20, but you see where the $20 came from, and so you give thanks to them. So that thankfulness is more than just recognizing the thing, it's recognizing the source of the thing. You can have the thing and be grateful, but to recognize the source is to be able to give thanks. So that Paul, St. Paul, just to go back to his example, Paul is able to look at a thing, to, and, and especially the thing that he looks at as the faith of the Christians, the, the people that, that, the fact that the Christians in any place have faith, he recognizes that, that thing is something good, but then he does more, he recognizes that it comes from God, that God is the source of these things. That God is the source of, of every good thing. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from God the Father, uh, from, the, from uh, the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or change of turning. This is how, how James talks about it. So that to be thankful is to look at what is and to recognize the source of that thing as God. Now this, remember, we're, we're working on this idea that Paul says to be diligent in thankfulness, and I, and I would like to suggest to you that this, in fact, takes work. That sometimes we think that being thankful is, go, is just going to happen naturally, but we know better when we have to teach our kids this all the time. We have to teach our kids always to say please and to say thank you. In other words, it's a trained sort of thing, and we need to train ourselves in this thankfulness to, to recognize the good thing and to recognize the source of it as God, as coming from God. Now, now with that in mind, I want to push one other direction and then kind of circle back around to, to make some practical points. But as we work on on being thankful, I think we can we can make a distinction between natural thankfulness and Christian thankfulness. Now, I want to see if you guys are going to let me let me get away with this distinction or not. I'm going to throw it out there and see what happens. But I think that everybody in the world can be naturally thankful, but I think what natural thankfulness is being able to recognize that the thing that we have is good. So that someone hands me something nice. You know, they hand me a 
a hot dog with mustard on it, or they hand me a, a hot cup of coffee, or my children, they, they help me with something. They give me a hand. They, someone comes along and they help me to change my tire, or, or someone says something nice. I, I'm able to recognize the thing that comes to me as a good thing, and when I recognize the thing as good, I give thanks to the source of it because of the goodness of the thing. That's natural thankfulness. But I think there's another kind of thankfulness, which is a Christian thankfulness, which doesn't just recognize the goodness of the thing, but rather we recognize the goodness of the source. The Christian knows that everything in this life comes from God. It comes from God the Father, who sent his Son Jesus for us. In fact, the key verse here that I have in my own mind is this verse from Romans 8, this beautiful text, where Paul says that he who did not spare his, only, his, own, his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also together with him also give us all things? So that God the Father didn't spare his Son, but sent his Son Jesus for us, and so that everything else comes to us from the hands of God who loved us. Everything comes to us by the will of God who, who died for us, who bled for us, who made a way for us to go to heaven. So that all of, the, all of the anger and wrath of God that should have been towards us because of our sin, all of that was poured onto Jesus so that everything now comes to us as a gift. He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, which means that the Christian can give thanks for the things that we recognize as good, but we can also give thanks for the things that we recognize as bad. Now think about that as the unique form of Christian thankfulness. It's not just recognizing the goodness of the thing that we have. It's recognizing the goodness of God from which all of these things come. And when we recognize God's goodness, when we recognize that God our Father loves us, that he's given his own son to die for us, when we recognize all of these things, then we're able to give thanks for the good and the bad. We're, a we're able to give thanks for being full and for being hungry. We're able to give thanks in sickness and in health. We're able to give thanks in life and in death. We're able to give thanks in abundance and in want. We're able to be content in all of these things and to receive them all from the hands of our Heavenly Father who loves us and gave His Son for us. Do you see, do you see that? So that I can, as a Christian, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm no expert at this. I, I have to work at it, like St. Paul says, and, and like we all do. I'm, I'm certainly not an example of thankfulness. But when we know that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, we're able to receive everything in this life as a gift. That, that the hands that hand over, that hand suffering to us, those hands have holes in them. That the hands that give us all the ups and downs in this life, that those are the same hands that were nailed to the cross, that the blood of the atonement spilled out of. And because we know that God loves us, we can give thanks in all circumstances. That is Christian thankfulness. That is a thankfulness that's worked by the Holy Spirit. And that is a thankfulness that lets us always begin and end our day giving thanks to God, whose goodness and mercy knows no bounds. So I hope you'll join me 
The practical stuff is every day to wake up and the first thing we want to do is say thank you. Luther taught us this in the morning and evening prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this night. And to recognize that at every point we have something to give thanks for and that in every circumstance we can give thanks. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you're listening to Cross Defense. I'm thankful that you are listening. We're going to go to the break, try to get a hold of Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, and see what sort of theological curiosity he's got to bring to us. So stick with us through the break. I think we just got a minute and a half or so, and uh, we'll see you right back here. This week on Issues Etc., we'll find out from Professor Stephen Parks if the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 proves the Roman Catholic teaching on the obscurity of Scripture and the necessity of an infallible magisterium. We'll discuss the First and Second Commandments from Luther's Small Catechism with Pastor Paul McCain, and we'll have Pastor Brian Wolfmiller introduce us to the book of Isaiah. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. I recently reconnected with a lady I used to know in California. She told me that she'd had some neck pain and so she had it checked out. It was cancer and she has just months to live. When I asked her how she's dealing with the news, she told me, I'm a winner. I know God. She's my guest on the next World Lutheran News Digest. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. Welcome back to CrossFit. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and theological maker of things, host of Cross Defense. You can find all the stuff on the blog. It's at wolfmuller.co-w-o-l-f-m-u-e-l-l-e-r. I'm pleased to bring on my great friend uh, and uh, and co-creator, the, uh, the host of Rede the Redeemer Theological Academy, and pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico, Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer. Pastor Ketchemeyer, how, how are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. Hanging in there. Hey, also author of a fourth, is it still forthcoming? It's a, this, does this, this week, does your book come out? Uh, no, 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 uh, next month, next month. So reading. Next, oh, man, okay, we got to wait for. Next month, yeah. Yeah, keep an eye, we'll, we'll have you back on for sure to talk about that. Isaiah with Luther, um, Luther has, what, what, what do you think, uh, top 10 of Luther's works is his commentary on Isaiah? Where do you put it in the realm of Luther's works? <laughs> That's funny. 
I, I put it at number one. No. <laughs> yeah, you you would. Oh, in fact, Pastor Ketchermeyer pointed out to me because because we used to, in fact, continue to talk about the conscience a important the conscience is to Luther and Lutheran theology and our uh, confessions, that Luther talks about the conscience more in his Isaiah commentary than in, in any other place, or maybe second to Galatians or something like this. It's, it's in how much Luther talks. And you, Pastor Ketchermeyer, told me that, and I didn't believe you, so I did a word search, and it turned out that it was true. That, how come that always happens, by the way? You tell me stuff, I don't believe you. Then I go search, and then it, it turns out that you're true. That always is happening, huh? But Luther's all about the conscience. In that, do you know? Do you have a sense of why? What what he's up to? What? Why so much conscience in Isaiah? Well, I think that the whole issue is what we're dealing with in the Reformation. The Reformation is really about pastoral care, pastoral concern. It is about the matter of the conscience. That uh, Luther himself, as a monk, is uh, struggling and wrestling with his own conscience, the own guilt that he has. Uh, he's troubled. He's terrified, and he's trying to figure out uh, what, how, how is he going to make things right. How is he going to find rest in his conscience? And it's not until he understands the gospel clearly that this is all about Christ, the mediator, the one who bears our sin. And for Luther, basically, the bottom line is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who bears our sin. And if he bears our sin, then our conscience doesn't bear our sin. Hmm. Fantastic. All right, what do you got for us today? Well, I, I think we, we could talk even more about the mediator. I, I mean, this is the whole point. You, you get this in Isaiah chapter 53, of course. Uh, that uh, Christ is the one who is that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who makes intercession for the transgressors. It's by his wounds that we are healed. That this becomes uh, vitally important to understanding the person and work of Christ. In the Middle Ages and scholastic theology, Christ was seen more primarily as a judge, as the one who is going to judge you. I mean, we say this in the Creed, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But in that medieval theology, the idea was, he's the judge right now. And if I'm going to be judged according to his righteousness, this is not going to be good, because I do not have a perfect righteousness, I do not have a perfect holiness, uh, I'm lacking in being obedient to the law, uh, I cannot uh, perfectly, completely fulfill all the requirements of the law, I can't do this. And so if you're going to stand before the judge, who is Jesus... This is horrible, terrible news. Well, that's what takes place in the Middle Ages, where now the focus and the attention goes more toward Mary, that Mary's going to be the compassionate one, that she becomes a mediator between you and the wrath of Jesus, instead of understanding that Jesus is the one mediator between you and the wrath of God. Hmm. Now, how do you think, just to kind of work historically... Um, how do you think that major picture uh, of Christ as the judge? How do, how does that come about? Where where do you where do you see this? I mean, it, it is a biblical image, but it's not the chief image, right? It's not the it's it's not the chief picture that the Bible is going to give to us. Where does it start to take the lead and become the thing that's captivated everyone's? Yeah, I, I think that what what you have in that scholastic theology is you're trying to emphasize the attributes of God. Uh, who God is. The God alone is holy. The God alone is righteous. The God alone is perfect. I mean, you're going through this and you're trying to understand that God is the other, that he's God and we are not. 
he's the creator and we are fallen creation. And therefore, when he promises his presence, he's promised to stand right there with you, this is not good, it's going to alarm your conscience. And, and you see this in medieval piety, in the idea of even going to the Lord's Supper, that uh, you don't really want to go to the Lord's Supper because you want to make sure that you are prepared and worthy to receive the sacrament of the altar, because now you're going before the judge, and his promised presence, he's going to be there, and he is going to judge your sins. And so therefore, you go through all of this piety to prepare yourself and fasting and prayer to make sure that you can go with a clean slate. I mean, totally missing the whole concept of what the Lord's Supper is all about. The idea is that now people are afraid to go to the Lord's Supper because they don't want to take it to their own judgment. And it, with the picture that they had in their heads was like there's a sword that's kind of hanging over the altar, and it's on a string, and then if you take this unworthily, that sword's going to come down and just whoop, cut your head off. I mean, that now you're going to be punished, and now you're going to be uh, sent to your damnation and judged for your sin. And so the Lord's Supper itself was seen as something that you need to prepare yourself to be holy in order to partake in this holy sacrament. Well, Luther comes on the scene, and he, he turns everything back upside down the way it should be in the Gospel, because the Gospel is always turning things upside down. The God who is holy is the one who comes in the Incarnation to dwell with us. He is Emmanuel. He comes to take our sin away. He comes to be the Lamb of God who makes full satisfaction that he's the one who pays the price for all of our sins. So he's judged and condemned. He's accused, and not us. That we're not accused, we're not condemned in Him, we're a new creation. And therefore, the Lord's Supper is the assurance of your salvation, that you partake knowing that He's made this promise, and He's giving to you His body and His blood for your life and for your sanctification, to cleanse you from all of your sins. And so Luther properly is restoring the person and work of Christ right now. The Christ who came to die for you on the cross is the Christ who now stands as your advocate with the Father. I want to, I, I, so I want to keep track in that way, but I want to take a quick side detour because I remember last year we, we were um, when we were prepping to go down to Germany, which was great. I mean, for you listening, Pastor Ketchermeyer and I were able to take a trip over to. Uh, to Germany together with our wives and and forty five other folks and and bounce around and look at all these things and and uh, I found this old book, it was a history of Luther and it was called Luther in His Own Words, so so whoever this guy d was that put this book together, it was going back through all of Luther's works and pulling out excerpts of his own accounts of the things that happened, and one of the very interesting things that surprised me was Luther telling about his pilgrimage down to Rome. So when he was an Augustinian, he went down to visit Rome on some Augustinian business, but he also took advantage of the opportunity to, to go on pilgrimage, and he would go and do all the pilgrimage stuff. He'd walk up the stairs on his knees and all these sorts of things. But he noted the, that, the, um, that the church there in Rome was a godless place, and one of the things that offended Luther the most was their practice of the Lord's Supper, and that the priests at the at that time in Rome would say the words of institution, and they'd say, "But we know that it's not really the bread. We know it's not really the body of Christ. We know it's not really the blood of Christ." 
so that they were all they had already adopted this enlightenment idea that reason should rule over the scriptures and that it can't be the body and the blood of Jesus and they were treating it they were treating it not they were treating it lightly as if it was no big deal they they were proud in front of the altar of god rather than being despairing or groveling or this sort of thing and luther was incredibly offended by that how do, i just want to toss that into the mix and see how that how that factors in here with the idea that that god is going to be angry at me but there's the, also the flip side that hey i can be proud so i don't care what god thinks well, I think that with the flip side is you have these two different roles, the role of the laity and the role of the priest. The laity themselves, they are, they're kind of just standing there in the cathedral. I mean, they don't know what's going on. It's all in Latin, right? And when the priest is up front and he is consecrating the bread and the wine, when he says, this is my body, he lifts up the host so that the people can see that now this has happened. Or when he, and you got the bells that are ringing, and likewise when he says this is my blood, he's lifting up the chalice so the people can see, and, and the people are just kind of present there. They're not actually participating, so they're not partaking of the Lord's body and blood. They're just kind of there where the Lord is, but it's the priest who is going to be there, lifting up the host, lifting up the chalice. And half the time, you you have these priests that don't even know Latin themselves. I mean, this is where we get this whole phrase, uh, hocus pocus. Uh, this is from this Latin, hoc est corpus, that there's a, a, a sloppiness, and the, the idea is that when the priest says the magic word hocus pocus, it changes from bread into uh, body. Well, now you're talking about at Rome, where you've got these priests who are just saying, yeah, that doesn't happen. And you, you have the priests who are who are handling these holy things. And so if you're constantly handling these holy things, and you've been told that as a priest you have this indelible character that's made you holy because of who you are, there kind of comes this possibility of this arrogance, that it just becomes commonplace, that now it's not something holy and something unique, it's just common because that's what you do as a priest. So I think on one end of the spectrum is there's a way in which you're not really putting your faith and trust in these words that this is for you, it's the idea that it's more the work of the priest doing this, so that the priest is offering up this sacrifice to God, and it's his job to do it. And then when it becomes commonplace, I mean, the priest isn't going to be as, as terrified as doing this, because that's just what he does. Whereas the laity, then, are, are much more terrified because they don't feel like they are holy like a priest, that they're not in that spiritual calling of a priest. They're just an average Joe Christian, and they're not really the super-Christian, and only the super-Christians are the monks, the nuns, and of course the priests and the bishops. And this is where Luther comes on the scene, of course, explaining that as the baptized, as the people of God, we're all consecrated as priests, the priesthood of the baptized that we are all brought into God's Church to be made His holy people. It's not something that we do, it's not something that we achieve, but it's God's holiness that's bestowed on us. He's making us holy, and then His holy presence is there for our benefit. And so on both ends of the spectrum, you have a lack of faith in the promise that this is the body and blood for you, for your life, for the forgiveness of your sins. And where there is a forgiveness of sins, you have salvation. And so a lack of, of really trusting these promises and seeing these as wonderful gifts from God. Let's build up then that promise around this word that you want to talk about, mediator. Um, and, and where do you want to start? Like what, how do we use, I know mediator is a theological word. Do we, do we ever use that word 
not theologically? Well, I think you, you have that word in the, the legal system, in the secular realm, in courts. Uh, you have mediation. Uh, usually what happens is when you have two different parties who are like in disagreement, shall we say, you have somebody who kind of goes between the two parties and he mediates. Uh, he is going to be the go-between. So the idea is that he's supposed to be objective. He's not supposed to be taking sides. He's supposed to be bringing together the two parties because something is separating the two parties and causing animosity. So, I mean, in the regular secular kind of legal realm, in that ju- uh, judicial language that we have in our own society, I mean, we understand the theological implications here, that God is the one who alone is holy and righteous. He is the creator. We are part of fallen creation, and sin has separated us from God. Sin has caused us to fall into death and despair and deceit of the devil, so that we're we're constantly being led away and astray from God. And this is the whole mystery of the Incarnation, that you can only have one who can truly be mediator. This is the perfect mediator, because he's going to bring these two parties back together. He's going to bring reconciliation. And so not only is is this idea that he's objective because he is truly uh, God, but this understanding that he who is truly divine takes upon the human flesh so that he can truly unite humanity once again with divinity. And so in Christ himself as the incarnate one, he brings together this union of God and man. And so he's bringing reconciliation between creator and fallen creation. He's that one mediator that we have between uh, God and and us uh, and our sin. That sin, of course, provokes God to wrath. Well, in the Middle Ages, again, that idea, I think the emphasis was trying to emphasize the deity of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, and at the expense of failing to properly understand the humanity of Christ in this office as mediator. And so instead, what happened is you look to fellow human beings like the saints, who like you and I were conceived and born in sin, and are struggling in this fallen world, and they understand what sin is. And so what happens in the Middle Ages is you kind of pick your favorite saint to be your own personal mediator. You're, you're picking your own advocate. It's like the idea in the legal system. You go through the yellow pages, and you pick the guy that you like that you think is going to do the best job for you, maybe because he looks like you, maybe because he talks like you, maybe because he's from the same location that you're from, that he can understand you. And so in the Middle Ages, you're looking towards the saints as your mediator. You're picking all these different mediators, and the most famous one, of course, is Mary. Mary is one who is mother. She's one who can understand. She, by nature, is compassionate in her motherly uh, heart for humanity. And so, naturally, it was that flow to go to Mary is the one who's going to go talk to Jesus and be the one who's going to be an advocate and going to actually reconcile you and Jesus. Not, not just the idea of you and divinity, but even you and Jesus, who's the judge who wants to condemn you. So they, they see Jesus as one who wants to bring condemnation and bring accusation, and not seeing Jesus as the one who is going to free us from the condemnation of the law and redeem us from that curse of the law. So the incarnation of Jesus sets him to be our brother 
And then he shows himself in that place to be our friend. You're listening to Cross Defense. That's Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, whose voice you're hearing on the other side there. That's uh, He's a pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church. Uh, in Aurora, Colorado. Thank you for listening to Cross Defense with us this afternoon. We got one more segment. We're going to press a little further on the redeem on this uh, on the office of Christ as Redeemer because it begins in the manger, but it continues even now. So that Jesus, uh, through his life, through his ministry, through his death, through his resurrection, and most especially in the ascension, fully takes up this office as the mediator between God and man and why does he need why do we need a mediator how is he the perfect mediator what is the result of this mediator mediation for the christian conscience we'll take up all those questions on the other side of the break stick with us we'll be right back thanks for listening to cross defense This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for... Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology. We are Worldwide KFUO. Did you know there was a pre-Braille Bible? It was published in 1842 by physician Samuel Gridley Howe, the husband of Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. After graduating from Harvard Medical College in 1824, in 1831, he was offered the position as the director of a new school for the blind in Boston. In 1842, he published the first pre-Braille Bible, Instead of using the system of raised dots, Howe raised the actual words on the surface of the page for the blind to read. This kind of type, called Boston Line Letter, was used until the 1900s when Braille became more commonly used. Samuel Howe's school changed its name in 1839, becoming the Perkins Institution for the Blind, where Helen Keller, its most famous student, attended. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Cross Defense this afternoon, Monday afternoon. You're listening to Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Ketchermeyer. Brian, which, which are you, Brian? Brian the Greater? I'm Brian the Lesser? Is that how that worked out? <laughs> Talking about... Pastor Ketchumar, by the way, is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and also the host of the Redeemer Theological Academy, which is top-shelf theological work over there. What, what are you doing on the Redeemer Theological Academy now? I've lost track. Well, what we're doing right now is actually we're talking about baptism, and so we're going through Ephesians, and we're looking at this understanding of our new identity, that we are a new creation in Christ, therefore we have new clothing and we have new walking. 
and this understanding that the letter is written to the baptized as we live by faith now, and the Holy Spirit is at work in us, uh, giving to us new thoughts, uh, new words, uh, new ways of acting. And so we're beginning to walk in newness of life. And so that whole language of new clothing, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we would take off those old clothings of the, the old Adam, the, the ways of the world and rebellion against God, and put on the new man, that we begin to walk in this new way as the Holy Spirit continues to work to renew our minds and our hearts. And then this is made manifest in the beginning of trying to start this whole walking in newness of life. Redeemer Theological Academy is a weekly uh, podcast, or is it coming out every week nowadays? It is, it is. Yep, a weekly podcast, 30 minutes, uh, Patrick Ketchermeyer walking through the scriptures, uh, uh, fantastic stuff. I mean, he really, you're, it's a deep dive. That's the way, that's the buzzword that people use nowadays, Pastor Ketchermeyer. You should use that in your marketing. It's a deep dive into the scriptures and the scriptural theology. One of the great things, by the way, Pastor Ketchermeyer, about all the work that you do, wherever you're doing it, is that it's saturated with the Scriptures, which is what I want to turn to now. So you talk about how Christ is the Redeemer. Or, no, sorry. Christ is the Mediator. It's not a word that we that we emphasize that much or that we talk about. Where would you point us to in the Scriptures where Christ is given to us as the Mediator between God and man? The, the most important passages that we have to understand this work of mediator is the is the word advocate. I mean, this is how we're translating this in John's first epistle, chapter two, uh, when you have uh, John writing and saying this that I'm telling you this so that you may not sin. I mean, this again, this is the idea of being baptized, uh, being justified by faith, being regenerated by faith, that the Holy Spirit now indwells us and is working in our hearts to do this, these new ways of thinking, these new impulses, right? And so therefore, you have this encouragement from John not to sin. But then he goes on and says, now, of course, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That this word advocate itself, this uh, parakletos, uh, this is where sometimes we usually use the word uh, in a way of talking about the Holy Spirit, because we call the Holy Spirit a paraclete. Uh, we get this from John's uh, uh, Gospel in chapter 14, 15, 16, when he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that he's going to send another parakletos, that Jesus is going to be one parakletos, one paraclete, an advocate with the Father, and then a second advocate with the Father is going to be sent, which is the Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, what you have in Romans chapter 8 about the work of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of adoption, always reassuring us and reminding us that we are God's children by grace. Uh, we have been brought into this promise through baptism uh, for all who have been baptized, have been clothed with Christ, and we are now children of God by faith. And in Romans 8, it's also this understanding that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of intercession. And so this is the idea of an advocate, somebody who's speaking up for you, somebody who's speaking on your behalf, for your benefit, with somebody else. 
that, that Jesus is the one who is going to be our advocate with the Father. And not only that, we have a second advocate, the Holy Spirit, who is taking our prayers, and he's the spirit of intercession, and he's kind of uh, reshaping our prayers so that they go uh, to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so that's going to be an important passage right there that we are, we are not supposed to sin. I mean, this is the whole idea. However, in this life, we still have sin clinging to us, and we're still wrestling against sin, we're still struggling with it, and we do sin. And so we continue to need an advocate with the Father. It's not a one-time deal. It's not like Jesus once was the mediator, but he constantly and consistently stands in our stead as the mediator, the advocate with the Father. Now, this is also... Now, what's interesting, Pastor Ketchermeyer, is that... The idea of the judge and the idea of the of the advocate are or the mediator are both judicial ideas, and I've been thinking about this a lot. Especially, so we went over to Greece this summer, and we went to the ruins of Philippi. It's very, it's really interesting. So there's the there's the theater in Philippi, then some houses, and there's an old basilica that's fallen down. There's the there's the well where they think that Paul was imprisoned. It probably wasn't, but maybe it's. It's there, but then you get down to the Roman city, and the way that the Roman cities were—this is going somewhere, by the way. Stick with me. Uh, the, the, they had the—they had this forum, so they had this big marble court, kind of open area, and all around it, on one side, there'd be shops, stores, maybe the bathhouse, maybe a church, maybe a famous person's house, and then they'd have the public places like the the places where the, all the public business would happen and then in the middle of the forum there was this raised platform and i just i just walked over the road and down the and i just was standing on this platform and our tour guide says oh a uh, pastor you're standing on the bima that there was this raised platform right outside the 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 courtyard where there was a judgment seat and the and the ruler or the Asiarch or the proconsul or whoever was in charge would go and sit in this place on this public uh, chair, and that meant that court was open and you could just drag anybody that you wanted over there to court, and the court would be held right out in front in public and in, in everything else. So now we have the courthouse, but in in the ancient world, the the courthouse was right in the middle of everything. And when you went to the court, there's there's certain characters that are acting there. There's the judge who sits there, and then there's the accuser who comes against you to make an accusation. And then there's the accused, and then the accused would bring to his side a mediator or a paraclete, a friend, who would argue his case as well. Now, this helps us because in the Old Testament, that all that happened at the gate so the, all the, all these court cases were happening there at the gate, but then the Romans change it so that the Jews can bring Jesus right before Pilate, and he's sitting there at the place of judgment. And every city, Corinth has its bema seat, Ephesus has its bema seat, they all have their judgment seats, and all these things would happen out in, in public. So you have these different offices and the different way that the court would happen. Now, what you're, I think what I've, I'm hearing you say is really quite beautiful is that the imagination of the church, especially in the Middle Ages, was that Jesus was the one who sat on the judgment seat, and he was the one who was judging you. But what the Reformation was able to bring out very clearly was that Jesus is the one who stands next to us and intercedes for us. He is the one who's not up there making the judgment, but the one who stands right here next to me as my advocate and my friend. 
Yeah, and I think that this is the, the, the confusion of the here and the not yet, because we have this eschatological in times where everything comes together at the end. And so we say in the creed that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And you have these passages in the Bible that talk about the last judgment, the last day, like, for instance, in Matthew 25, where he's gathering all the nations as a shepherd, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Well, that's that image and that picture of Jesus being judged on the last day. However, the whole gospel proclamation right now is that Jesus is your mediator now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to turn and take your refuge in him. So that when you have that last day of Matthew 25, when he's going to judge, you have the sheep who are already sheep. They, they are those who know the voice of the Good Shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. They have lived their life hearing his voice, that voice that brings the good word, the word of the forgiveness of sins. And so that's what the mediator does right now. And that's why when Paul will talk about this, this language of mediator more, most clearly is in First uh, Timothy chapter 2, where he says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, that Jesus is the one who redeems us. He's the one who gives his blood as that ransom price. And this is the focus on the humanity of Christ here in the Incarnation. And that's something that you were, you were losing and being left out in the Middle Ages, where they were seeing Christ more. They were focusing on the divinity of Christ on the last day, that he's going to judge and he's going to make everything right. Instead, to understand the idea that Christ is our mediator right now, he's the one who is our high priest, and he can empathize with us because he has taken upon the flesh and he suffered as we have suffered, and he has felt the temptation as we have felt the temptations, as, of course, is talked about in the letter to the Hebrews. Now, how so, so the work of the mediation begins when Jesus takes on our flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but it continues now, even now. So Hebrews says he always lives to intercede for us, we, or that text that you quoted in 1 John, we have an advocate with the Father a mediate, a, a paraclete with the Father Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So his work of mediation continues. What does that look like? I want to make sure we talk about that. Uh, what does it look like? What does the Bible say about it? And how does it benefit us before we before we run out of time? Well, ju just really quickly, I mean, this was one of the things that Melanchthon brings out in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession when he's talking about justification. Uh, he, he's addressing the issue of how we give the proper glory and honor to Christ in his office as mediator, and how we then give true comfort and peace to the terrified and troubled conscience because of sin. And, and so Melanchthon is going to emphasize this whole understanding that he continues to be a mediator. And then he looks at the, the papists, the Roman Catholics who are rejecting the understanding of justification, and he, Melanchthon says, you guys are burying Christ. You're putting him back into the grave. <laughs> and so that's the, the, 
their, their theologians are saying he was a one-time mediator, and that only happened on the cross. So it's only on the cross that he functioned in that role of mediator, but now it's all up to you. I mean, so he's kind of put you on the right track, and now it's you and you achieving and actively doing what God requires in the law, and you merit your own eternal life. And so Melanchthon's saying you can't bury Christ as mediator. You've got to continue to understand that he stands as mediator. I mean, that's the language in Hebrews, that he stands now as our high priest. And so he continues to be the high priest, giving to us this access with the Father. I mean, that, that's the idea, of course, in, in Hebrews uh, 9, 10, 11, the whole idea where we're gathering together into God's presence right now. Uh, we, we stand before the judge right now, but right now we also have this mediator, the one whose blood speaks a, a better word than the blood of Abel, of course. It's, it's a blood of forgiveness. And so the whole point is that Christ currently has ascended, and in the ascension, it's not like he's sitting down somewhere on a chair and he's taking a break. Uh, he's, uh, he's kind of resting for all of his work. Instead, in the ascension, we understand that he is high priest mediator right now because we continue to sin, and he continues to pour out on us the remission of our sins and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so he's the one who brings us to the Father, uh, as we have like in Romans chapter 5, that therefore being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. We have access to the Father through the Son, currently, right now. That's fantastic. So this is, I mean, if nothing else, and dear listener out there, this is what we want to pick up on today, that when you're reading through the, when you're reading through the Scriptures, let this stand out, this office of mediator, that Christ is the one who stands between us and the wrath of God, so that the wrath of God is poured out on him, not on us, that, that Jesus gets God's anger so that, so that in Christ we can get God's friendliness. Pastor Ketchabar, we got like a minute and a half. You got a quick, anything else that we must need to bring our attention to before we wrap it up? Well, again, this is putting Christ in uh, his role and putting us in our role, putting everything in the proper place, that when we understand that we belong to him, we are in Christ, we are a new creation, therefore there is no condemnation, and we take refuge in him, we trust him to do what he is to do, and that is to take on all of our sin. So he continues to take it away. So even when our own conscience kind of bears testimony that, hey, we're guilty before God, uh, hey, God doesn't like us because he doesn't like what has happened to us, well, the issue is that our conscience is always only uh, testifying to our good deeds or our bad deeds. Our conscience can't testify to the deeds of another done in our stead. That's why we've got to continue to hear the gospel, continue to hear the good news that in Jesus alone do we have the forgiveness of sins, that we come to him, and in him we have rest. Stands between us and the wrath of God. He is our mediator who opens up the way to everlasting life. And he not only was standing between us on the cross, but he continues to stand between us, stand next to us as our friend, advocating for us, not our good works, but his blood, his suffering, his death, his mercy, his kindness, his cross, all those so that we could be the friends of God. Ah, that's the best. Pastor Ketchermeyer, I appreciate it. Pastor Ketchermeyer is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. He's the host of the Redeemer Theological Academy. Search for that on Google. You'll find it. His stuff, it's really fantastic. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, your host every Monday afternoon 
on Cross Defense. Thanks for tuning in, for listening. Thanks for joining in the conversation, and we'll catch you next week. Igniting your theological curiosity with the kindness of Christ, with the blood of Jesus, which opens up to us the way of everlasting life. Talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.